Last week, we started a series um, on the book of Matthew, and we're going to just be going through the book of Matthew for the next however long it takes, basically. We're just going to go through Matthew section by section by section, and uh, we feel like it's a significant, there's a significant message in it for us as a church. But last week, my dad, so if we haven't met before, my name is Wilson. I'm one of the pastors here. My mom and dad planted this church about 20 years ago. And um, last week, my dad opened the series. It's called Following the King. And what he, he preached on was the first several verses in the book of Matthew. Um, and Matthew is, is an account of the life of Jesus. So the first several verses of the book of Matthew, are the first 17, are what's called a genealogy. And that's just literally a list of names, whose father is whose and whose mama is whose and how do we get to where we are now biologically, you know? And this is what I love about preaching on genealogies. It's a pretty low expectation from you guys for this to be interesting. So I really don't have to do much to like make you leave here feeling like, wow, I learned something today because it's a genealogy. It's a list of names, okay? So let's look at this list of names. All right, now you can all read that, right? You can all read that really well. Get your binoculars out. Um, so my intent in this slide is not actually for you to read it, but more for you to be able to notice some things about it that I think all of us can notice, regardless of if we can read the actual words. So first of all, we see that we have the first sentence, the book of the, I mean, you can't read this, but I got you, don't worry. So I got young eyes. I actually got LASIK. So I got us all covered. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So those first three names, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that actually is like an outline. It's a thesis statement. It sets the stage for the rest of the verses. So this next chunk of verses is all about everyone that lived between Abraham and to David. This, the middle paragraph is about everyone who lived from King David, who is the most famous heroic figure in the history of Israel, from David to when the nation of Israel was actually taken into exile. I mean, like, just really quick, imagine that China came and conquered the United States and all of us were taken to China, or a lot of us. That is what it means to be taken into exile, okay? That literally happened to God's chosen nation, Israel. They were taken from where they lived to a new land. A lot of them were given, okay, that's another sermon. So David to, to going into exile. And then this last, um, thir- this third paragraph here is from when they were in exile until Jesus was born. All the people that lived, Mostly all the people that lived that get, get us to where Jesus is. Now, just a couple notes on genealogies. Um, one thing is this. As we're looking at the, the, the layout right here, we're getting into a field called numerology. Everyone say numerology. numerology. You don't need to remember that. But basically, numerology is rooted in creation. Numerology, the study of numbers. Um, and, the, and really what numerology is all about, there's like a, you know, 
Jewish version of it that we can understand how did Jews and how did the Judaic faith look at numbers and their significance, and then we can actually apply that. This is amazing, isn't it? Did you guys mean to walk into a college class right now? <laughs> Sorry, like, um, man, what was I saying? Okay, so I'm just so funny that I lose my place. Um, so Jew, there's a Jewish understanding of how numbers operate and how numbers actually kind of re reflect things about God and about the spiritual realm and about the supernatural. And when we start with the Jewish understanding of how did they interpret the significance of numbers, and then we take that as context and a backdrop for understanding the Bible, that's healthy and that's great. Now, you can also take numbers and just go demonic with it. And you can look for all kinds of signs and understandings. I mean, look, it's kind of the same thing with astrology and the stars. How did the wise men find Jesus? The stars. You know what that's called? Astrology. <laughs> How do some people um, do weird, wicked things? Reading the stars, okay? So like, there is, a, some, there is a pattern there with numbers and with the stars and with different things that actually were birthed in God. These are like God's ideas, but then they've been corrupted by humanity in the fall. And so anyways, we're thinking about healthy numerology here. That's my disclaimer. What this, what this is right here is, this is three generations of 14 generations. Okay? So that first paragraph, that's 14 generations. The second one, 14. The third one, 14. Now, what is 14 divided by two? Seven. So what we're looking at right here is three sets of double seven. Three sets of double seven. Now, how many days does the creation account say it took God to create? Seven. And at the seventh day, God rested. So to the Jewish mind, the number seven was like, oh, completion. Completion. So what we're supposed to get like, if you were an ancient Jew reading this, um, first century Jew, you know, living 2,000 years ago and you read this, you would be like, believe it or not, after you got finished reading this, you'd be like on the edge of your seat, like, oh my goodness, what's coming next? <laughs> Completion is here, like, something very important is about to arrive at the scene. So last week, my dad talked about how the genealogy really should bring us, um, it should call like a story to mind, that each each phase here is telling a story to an audience. And really, this is what like all genealogies do. This past week, I was having lunch with a friend, and uh, he was actually the guy singing in the middle. And his name is Nicholas Murray Hunter. And we were talking, and his grandfather had just passed away. Amazing man. And um, I was asking, like, so when did your, like your, your dad was born in Greenwich, Ohio, right? Which is where his, his grandfather just passed away. And he said, yeah. And I said, was your grandpa from there? And he said, yes. And then I said, was his grandpa, was his father from there? And he said, yes. And so I found out that Nicholas Murray Hunter's father, James Clark Hunter, was born in Greenwich, Ohio. And then uh, Richard Clark Hunter, God bless him, just passed away. Um, he was born in Greenwich, Ohio. And then, tell me if I'm wrong here, but Clark Murray Hunter? Murray Hunter was born in Greenwich, Ohio. Now, what is my friend, the guy you guys all just watched lead worship's middle name? Murray. I mean, none of you could know that, but he, so there's a story in a genealogy. And look at how much I just told you. 
I told you about the passing of a loved one. I told you about a family's origin, where they, where they lived. Like, I just told you so much just through telling you a couple generations of names. So I wanna dive into this and not look at it just like a list of names, but what is the reason that Matthew wrote this three sets of double seven, completion is here, genealogy. Why did he decide to, like, what a bad way to start a really important book, right? I'm just gonna start the most important piece of literature anyone in this room is ever gonna read with a bunch of names and who's who. <laughs> no, wrong. We're, it's supposed to be screaming a story to us. So leave this up. Um, we have Abraham all the way to David. What this, is, what this is, is this is like the glory years of the nation of Israel, okay? This is where we have the story of David defeating Goliath. This is where we have the story of the Red Sea parting. So you're reading this list of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And you're like, oh my gosh. And then they went into slavery in Israel. That's what you're thinking in your head. Wow, and then that's when God showed up as king and God showed up as superior to Egypt. And you know, like in Egypt, they thought Pharaoh was a God. But then Yahweh comes in and says, yeah, you think you're a God? Well, I am the most high God. And I'm gonna whoop your butt right now with all these plagues and manifestations of my power and glory. And then um, I'm gonna part a sea in half to free my people from your oppression. Like all of that, the emotion of that, the excitement of that would kind of like rush to the surface for a Jew. And, and it can for us too, as we read the genealogy. And then we go on and we get other amazing stories like the story of Jericho. The walls falling down just by marching around the city, um, all the way to David and Goliath, the young guy, the young boy defeating the big war hero in the field. You know, we have just totally made that story. We've reduced it to a children's tale. You know, but when you think about like Johnny, will you stand up? <laughs> okay, so Johnny's what, like 14, 13? He. Okay, let's put him up on stage and have him fight the biggest, baddest Navy SEAL in town. That's what the story of David and Goliath is. It's the story of Johnny trusting in God and killing the biggest, baddest Navy SEAL around. So like, there's all these emotions, there's all these stories, there's all this backdrop rising to the surface for a first century Jew as they read this. And what I wanna tell you is, they're kinda like, what, what they would be recollecting to here is like the big red machine days of the Reds. It's like, you remember Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and Pete Rose. You're thinking, come on, yeah, this is my baseball team, baby. Like, this is my story. And then we jump to the next phase and we kind of get a little bit more of like a Bengals vibe, all right? Um, <laughs> and to be fair, as of late, the Steelers as well, okay? <laughs> Bengals have so much, I'm jumping ship. I'm gonna let my son be both a Steelers and Bengals fan, okay? Just for his emotional health, because the, the Bengals have a much brighter future than the Steelers. Um, so, he, so here we have David all the way to, and, and what, okay, so this, the first paragraph is like the establishment of the nation of Israel. It's God starts with one man named Abraham and he says, I'm gonna make an entire nation out of you. Again, how often do we just be like, 
well, yeah, I'll make a nation out of you. And that like phrase, if you're a Christian or if you've grown up in church, for me, like that phrase has almost become like a proper noun. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I will make a nation of you. And I'm like, yeah, great. I've heard that one million times. But I want you to think about this. One person turns into millions of people <laughs> who live in a country, who have an army, who like, he made a little nation of one person. So that's the, that's the first half is how did God take one man? That's the very first paragraph. How did God take one man and create an entire nation? Then the second, the middle paragraph is what was it like when that kingdom was established? What was it like in the time of this nation's history, Israel? What was it like in, the, in their history when they had kings ruling over the entire land? And there's so many stories in there, but basically it got really bad. <laughs> like the nation of Israel got very corrupt and broken and the poor were being oppressed and um, they were doing child sacrifice and worshiping idols and all kinds of like horrendous stuff. And kind of like the thing we take from this phase of Israel's history is there's a deep problem with humanity. Like humanity is really, really, really broken. Even when God gives them amazing rules to live by. That's what the covenant, one of the, the 10 commandments and the whole law he gave them. Hey, here's, here's um, rules I'm gonna give you to live by that will make your life prosper. Like the, the law in the Old Testament wasn't to restrain people it was to direct them to good, true life, to living the good life. So this, this middle section here is supposed to paint the picture for us like, man, Israel really tanked bad. And a big reason is because um, bad, broken, fallen hearts. And then we get to the third, um, the third and final paragraph. And basically... So really quick, I'll pause there, all right? So God makes all these different covenants with the nation of Israel. And I'm gonna be very, I'm gonna really reduce this, okay? So like, there's people in the room who know more than me who are gonna be like, that was way too reduced, but this will make sense. God made two kinds of covenants with the nation of Israel. He would make conditional covenants and unconditional covenants, my dad talked about this last week, how sometimes God would say to someone in Israel, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And what he meant by that is like, no matter what you do, I'm accomplishing this. And then other times he made covenants with them that said, if you follow my rules, if you obey the way I'm telling you to live, then these good things will happen. And if you don't follow my rules, don't listen to me, then these bad things will happen. And it wasn't like God is like, hey, I want you to follow my divine rules. I'm gonna crush you if you don't. He was like, hey, if you follow my good rules, you're gonna get to experience what life is really supposed to be like, full of joy and prosperity and, um, and, and everything good. But if you don't follow my rules, you're gonna see that, that actually, because, you know, sometimes when we sin, it feels good. Do you know that? That like, when people sin, sometimes it feels gratifying for a moment. Anyone else? Um, and so imagine if God didn't teach us that sin actually is harmful for us. Like by giving the law and saying, if you break these, these bad things will happen, he was incentivizing them to never have to experience the natural consequences that he wasn't even bringing when they sinned. So like, if you, the, it was a conditional covenant, meaning that if they sinned, God would do something bad to them. But you know that also when you sin, 
just bad things happen to you. <laughs> By the way, we don't live in that covenant anymore. Come on. We don't live in a covenant where God's like poking on us if we don't do it right. Jesus sacrificed once and is mediating between us and God so that there's never a reason to be punished or wrath poured out on us. But in this old covenant, this con in this conditional covenant, when they sinned, God, was God gave them a consequence that they knew would happen if they sinned to incentivize them to not sin. Because when you sin, bad things happen no matter what. And so in this middle middle paragraph, they have sinned so much and broken the covenant so many times that God lets the, and he like, God is like being very merciful and long suffering. He could have sent them into exile much earlier than he did, but he keeps on slowing down. He keeps on slowing down. He keeps on slowing down and, and relenting his wrath and then finally sends them into exile. And it's because they were in a conditional covenant with God at that time. Now, really quick, let's flip over to the unconditional covenants. An unconditional covenant, here's an example of an unconditional covenant. Turn to Genesis 6. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now here, here it is. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Full stop. Period. Not if you obey me. <laughs> Not if you listen to me. I will do this. This is what I'm going to do. Unconditional covenant. Turn really quick to 2 Samuel 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 2 Samuel. Here's what God's saying to David. When your day, this is starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now really quick, oh no, I won't, okay. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What we're seeing again here is an unconditional covenant. He even talks about what will happen if this son of David sins. He'll punish him. He'll, he'll, he'll correct him. Not, I'll take the blessing away or take the promise away. And this is a prophecy of actually two people, of David's next son, Solomon, and then the ancestor of David, Jesus. There's like, Jesus, I think Jesus, I'm scared. Jesus, whose throne is established forever? Whose kingdom is reigning forever? <laughs> Who did God put sin on so that he could take sin off of us permanently? 
Jesus. Who took sin into the grave and came out without it? Okay? So this is a prophecy of Jesus. It's an unconditional promise to David about his descendant, Jesus. So that was my quick aside about conditional versus unconditional covenants. It's just such a critical thing we understand as we read the story of the Bible. When we don't, this is one of the concepts that if we don't get, we get really confused about why is God kind of different in the Old Testament? Why is he like murdering and slaughtering and smiting and smoting and like, what's up with this? Well, there's conditional and unconditional covenants and a lot more to that. So now we go to our last, the moment we've all been waiting for, the, la- the third paragraph. Um, and after the deportation to Babylon, and then a whole list of names ending with, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So this is the moment it, so now what, it's, what this last paragraph is doing, I'd propose to you, is presenting to us the moment in time that Jesus is appearing at. We've gotten his history and his backdrop and his culture in the first two um, paragraphs. And now in this last one, we're getting where he is in time. What's actually happening? What's his context like? What was his Um, What was the culture of his day like? What was the fresh recent history of his day? So this is where Jesus bursts onto the scene and says, and makes this crazy statement. Um, Matthew 4, 17 and 19. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now jump back to the last slide really quick, Denise. Does it feel like the kingdom of heaven is at hand right now? (laughs) No. Does it feel like, oh, wow, we're about to go back into the Davidic era where David, the amazing king, is ruling and reigning? No. Like, this is the basement of Israel's history. And Jesus shows up. You can go back to what Jesus said, Denise. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What I'm trying to like kind of flesh out here is this is a very bold and like um, confusing, backwards, paradoxically seeming claim that Jesus is making. He's saying like, look, or that Matthew is presenting for us. This is like some of the very first words of Jesus in the whole gospel. So we go from Jesus' history through genealogies to his first words. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't feel like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our circumstances aren't telling me that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, I don't think the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you understand what's going on right now and what the world is like around me? I can't believe the kingdom is about to break in right now and your rule and your reign and your will is gonna start being done while Rome is oppressing me. While these laws are being passed that are forcing me to do things I don't wanna do. While um, there is... While we are literally feeling like we are the hostages of another country, this is what they're feeling when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I'm going to pause on this verse a little bit more. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word repent, if we, if when we hear the word repent, if we skip right to behavior, we're missing 
the, the full meaning of the word repent. And really the word repent at its basic means to change the way that you think. Now one of the secrets of the Christian life is changing the way you, that you think so that you change the way you behave. So Jesus is saying, I know that how it looks like around, uh, it looks like um, the kingdom's not about to show up, but I want you to change the way you think because the kingdom's about to show up right now. Last night, I was on the phone with a AAA operator and he reminded me so much of a friend of mine, like his accent and everything he was saying um, just reminded me so much of my friend Nathan. And so like halfway through the call, I just said to him, I was like, hey, is your name Nathan? And, before, and by the time I even got that out, I felt stupid. I was like, I mean, you just reminded me of a friend. <laughs> and he was like, oh no, my name's not Nathan, but my, my name's Eugene, but one of my best friend's name is Nathan, and um, my oldest son's name is Nathan. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, maybe coincidence, maybe numerology. Three, the, mo the number of power evangelism encounters. Um, and I was like, okay, huh. So we just kept on with the conversation, and he said, yeah, someone will be out to your, the car to get the keys out um, at this time. I was like, okay. And he's like, anything else I can help you with? And I said, no. And then right before he hung up, I said, but wait, really quick, man. This, I, I just feel like God has a message for you right now. And he's like, okay. And I said, my friend Nathan, you know how I said you remind me of my friend Nathan? And he said, yeah. I said, well, my friend Nathan really hears God's voice super clearly. And I feel like what God is wanting to say to you right now is that you actually hear his voice really clearly. And don't believe the lie that you can't hear his voice and you're disconnected from him. And even more so, I feel like what God wants you to know is, yes, you hear him, but he hears you. God hears you, he knows you, and he loves you. And I expect just to hear click, you know. <laughs> and he kind of like, he pauses and he goes, I have the cold chills. I have the chills right now after you said that. My mother just passed away, and ever since she passed away, I've just been feeling like, well, where is God? Where is God right now? And we go into this conversation, and he says, you know, my fa I never had a father, so my mom was everything to me. My, I never knew my father. Like, I really felt like he kind of rejected me, and he, he preferred my siblings so much. He, he didn't say I never knew him. He just said he preferred my siblings so much over me that I never got attention from him. And I told him, man, well, <clears throat> God wants to be your father, okay? Like, he wants to show to you that he's a good dad and da-da-da-da. And I said, when we get off the phone, just pray this prayer. Because he said, I got to go now. And he kept on saying, I have the chills, though. And I was like, that's the Holy Spirit. That is God showing himself to you, man. Like, what you're experiencing right now is not just the AC unit. It is God's presence. And he says, okay. And I said, when we get off the phone, just say this prayer. God, I want to know you as Father. God, I want to know you as Father. And what was going on right there was I was encouraging him to change the way he thought so he could see that God was actually close. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You believe God doesn't hear you? You believe he's far off and he doesn't care about you? Change the way you think. He does hear you. He does love you. And those cold chills, that's the kingdom of God at hand on you right now, bro. You're experiencing his presence. This is the kingdom. So this is the message that Jesus brought was change the way you think so you can live in and experience the kingdom of God.
And then he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I just want to note really quickly, it's so interesting. This is the very first thing that the Gospels record Jesus saying to um, Peter and Andrew, two disciples that he's calling. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What is our like kind of salvation call to people? Like reason to follow Jesus. Be forgiven of your sins, right? Follow Jesus so your sins are forgiven. Follow Jesus so you can go to heaven. What is Jesus' first call to them? Follow me and join my life purpose. <laughs> In evangelism, man, our call to people isn't what can you get out of God? It's God wants to use you. Do you want to get on board? That's, the, that's the, um, the lens of evangelism and the lens of proclaiming the gospel and the lens of sharing God's love with people. It's not that God wants to meet all your needs. That turns people into consumers that don't do anything. God does want to meet your needs, but he'll meet your needs um, up front, some of them, and then he will teach you how to live well so that more of your needs get met as you follow him, as you put your life in submission to him and as you join his mission. So Jesus doesn't say, follow me and I'll teach you how to read the Bible. Follow me and I will teach you how to be a good person. Follow me and I'll teach you how to accumulate wealth. He says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Being a Christian means I am joining the mission of Christ. I'm joining the mission of Jesus. I'm not just coasting. It's not just church on Sundays or a podcast here and there or whatever. I am full blown. Nothing is more important to me than serving the king in his kingdom. All right. So, let's go back to the genealogy. I'm all up in a tizzy right now. All right. We got the genealogy. So, I just elaborated on the, the uh, paragraphs and the significance of the names, the numbers, and the history. But what else jumps out to you guys about this slide? The red letters. So, thank you. Um, go to the next slide, please, Denise. Here are those red letters. By Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, by the wife of Uriah. So, this is what I want to spend the rest of my time on. And it's not going to be super long. But what I want to do is spend the rest of my time exploring two questions. Okay, so the first question I want to explore is this. What did the Holy Spirit teach me through these women's stories? Each of these four women were um, our Old Testament stories from that first chunk of time, that, that first genealogy. Well, one bleeds into the second, but it's like the very beginning of the second. So the two questions I want to talk about are this. What did the Holy Spirit teach me through these women's stories? And then secondly, why, are these, why these four women? Why are they noted? What do they have to do with Jesus? Why are they in the genealogy? How do they contribute to the story of Jesus this, and this climactic moment of Jesus appearing on the scene at the right moment in time. Well, before we get into this, before I answer the question, before we get into the question, I want to actually pause and kind of like differentiate and, and appreciate, differentiate and appreciate the very nature or type of questions that we're asking. So go to slide eight. Yeah, back one. 
Here are the two questions. Why these four women, what do they have to do with Jesus? And what did the Holy Spirit teach me through these women's stories? So if you notice before, I, I showed you these questions in the opposite order, right? I mean, maybe you didn't notice that, but the first question I said was, what did the Holy Spirit teach me? And the second question I asked was, why these four women? This is the right order to ask those questions. The wrong order is, what did the Holy Spirit teach me and why these four women? And go to the next slide, Denise. What I'm getting at here is, one of these questions was like a faith-based question, if you will. It was like a spiritual question. What did God reveal to me? And the other question was more of like a historical question. Why, in the context, what is the significance of these women being here? So I just want to go on a really quick rabbit trail about how we apply, how we should, the order in which we should study Scripture. That's going to pay off and it's going to pay dividends as we continue to go through Matthew and for our personal devotional times and, and what have you. So when we're reading Scripture, you can go back one. I want to I confess that it's easy to look at Scripture primarily and, and, and um, firstly through a faith lens, meaning what is the lesson, what is the spiritual tidbit I can get out of this story? And what we're doing there is we are mixing the type of actual literature, we're, we're merging the types of literature that appear in the Bible. There's three different types of literature in the Bible. Um, narrative, poetry, and prose discourse. Narrative meaning stories. Poetry meaning poetry. And prose discourse meaning like teaching and like, a, uh, like the letters. And, and um, when Jesus actually does the Sermon on the Mount, that's like prose discourse. So when you read prose discourse, the purpose that was written was for someone to be instructed. When we read something from, you know, Romans or the law, you know, like we're reading instructions. But when we read narrative, which is all the information we have about Rahab in the Old Testament, about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, all of it is narrative, meaning that all of it is historical accounts. So we have to start on the history side of those stories. We have to say, okay, as I read this, what's going on in it? Not jump right to, well, David and Goliath, the little guy who has faith in God can always win the battle. You know, like that is just going right to faith. But history is understanding the context and the culture and what's actually going on in the situation. So um, here's a really simple tool to use as we, as we go through this. Go to slide number 12, please. Well, actually, let me read these two. Slide number 10 and 11. Let's do 10 first. Okay, when we're reading a narrative in Scripture, our history lens should be something like this. So the thought on our head as we read a narrative in Scripture should be something like, first, something like this. There is cultural context that I need to consider in order to understand this story. And then go to the next one, please. When we are reading a narrative in Scripture, our faith lens should be something like, there are takeaways and revelations in this story that Holy Spirit will reveal to me that fall in line with the overall teaching of Scripture. So after I understand the actual context, then the Holy Spirit's going to begin to bring to life 
what he wants me to do with what I'm reading. Next slide. And here's how we do this. Here's the paradigm that I want to encourage us all to have and that I try to employ when I read scripture. O-I-A. Everyone say O-I-A. Turn to the person next to you and go, O-I-A. 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 Observe, interpret, apply. This is the pathway to helpful um, reading of scripture. We start by observing. And when we're observing, what we're doing is we're noting what stands out to us. What is it that I notice that's interesting to me or catches my attention? With the genealogy, what I noticed, and what you know, hundreds of scholars, I'm not the only one that noticed this, is that there's these four women listed early in Jesus' genealogy. There's five total women, and four of them are all bunched together right there. Oh, what I'm doing right now is I'm observing as I read. I'm just taking it in, observing. I'm not, I'm not making conclusions, and I'm not, um, and I'm not applying it. I'm not even asking questions. I'm just noting what I observe. Secondly, we want to really, the heart here is be curious, okay? Be curious in the observation phase when you're reading Scripture. So I'm, what I'm talking about right now is you open up the Bible, Matthew 24. I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to first note my observations, Next, we move to interpreting. And what we're doing with interpreting is <clears throat> we're turning our observations into questions and then we're seeking answers to those questions. So first, you know your observations. Second, you interpret. You turn your observations into questions and you try and find answers. Man, second service is gonna be straight up asleep at this point. All right, like a couple of you guys yawn and it's not even 11 yet. Um, so thirdly, so w this is when I turn my observation into a question. Why are they all bunched together? What is the reason that those four names are all bunched together right now? Hmm, I wanna, I wanna investigate that. What I'm gonna have to do is go to a commentary or ask someone who knows more than me, go to the Bible Project YouTube channel, start to actually dig in at a second level. Like, if you have the ability to read, man, like we want to steward that, especially when it comes to scripture and dive in and do, do. Not, I'm not saying that everyone in the room needs to make super deep study or jam, but some study is, it, it will bring so much life to your heart as you grab a commentary and as you dive deeper to understand and interpret. And then lastly, we apply. <laughs> and what we're doing here is we're coming to the conclusion that we understand why this is here. I understand why these four women are here. And now I'm gonna ask the whole, I'm gonna pause and pray or I'm gonna pay attention to that small, still voice inside and say, what do you want me to do with this information now, Holy Spirit? So the application phase isn't just understanding the scripture and having the answer. A is not for answer, okay? A is for apply. How do I think and then live differently in light of this truth? And when the Holy Spirit is breathing on this process, what it's called is revelation. It's when you're getting revelation from Scripture and your life is transformed and changed. Who loves revelation? I mean, come on. So the faith lens, you can go to that, that slide again real quick, Denise, with the faith and history. What the faith lens ends up doing is it skips observe. If we're heavy on the faith side, and I'm not saying faith as in, I just mean spiritual. Um, what we're doing is, we're 
not observing enough. And if we're too high on the history side, we're just going right to apply. And we're not actually understanding first what we should apply. So let's, here's the takeaway. In order to honor scripture as a real event, we need to start with the history lens. And then in order to live it out, we apply the faith lens. We start with history and we go to faith. They don't compete. They're not diametric. They're not, com- they're not against each other. Just, and they're not even, one's not more important than the other. One just precedes the other. We start with understanding the context and then we go to the application. All right, so let's answer the questions now. Why these four women? Slide 13. Why are these four women listed here? Two primary reasons, I think, from my own contemplation and then even more so from study. Number one is to reveal to us God's heart for the Gentiles. Two out of four of these women are undisputably not Jewish. Um, Rahab and Ruth are both listed as not being Jews. So you know what that means? The Messiah was not pure Jew. He had Gentile blood in him. What that's supposed to illuminate is that God's heart was always for the nations. Jesus' mission was never just for Israel, it was for the whole world. And then secondly, um, and this is much more complex, I'm just gonna say one quick thing about it to maybe whet your appetite. But the Genesis 6, one through four problem. Genesis 6, one through four is the story in scripture where the sons of God came and had sexual relationships with the daughters of men and created these mutant offspring called the Nephilim. Go read it, Genesis 6, one through four. And if you asked an ancient Jew, why is the world broken and messed up? They would actually say three different things. Whereas maybe a Christian today who's removed from that context would only say one thing. I would say, oh, the fall, Adam and Eve. They messed up and everything's screwed up now, right? Well, there's actually, in the Jewish worldview, there'd be three things that they'd be thinking of. First, they'd be like, okay, yeah, Adam and Eve kicked this thing off. They really screwed up by obeying um, the devil. But in Genesis 6, we see that there is actually a spiritual rebellion as well. And that these created angelic beings that God created to accomplish his will broke the divine order and they had sexual relationships with human beings and created this offspring that then taught humanity all kinds of evil messed up stuff. I'm sure that half of that was just like, okay, Will, are we on, you know, like Discovery Channel right now, sci-fi edition or something? But I'm just telling you what I believe and what I really believe to be true. So God's heart for the Gentiles and the Genesis 6, 1 to 4 problem. All of these women are connected to that storyline of the fallen sons of God and Jesus is coming to totally redeem that situation. Next, what did the Holy Spirit teach me through these stories? And I'm just gonna tell you one lesson he taught me really quick, okay? But the four things from each story was from Tamar, you can go read this story, just Google Tamar or look it up, whatever, is the negative power of fear. I'm not going to summarize that story, even though I'm tempted to. Rahab, what I took away was the positive power of testimonies. This is revelation. This is stuff that God opened to my eyes I had never seen before in her story. Ruth, obedience and redemption. Um, Bathsheba, nothing. I didn't get to studying that one. So for Rahab, though, really quickly, let me just tell you this story. Um, in that first paragraph of the genealogy, they're about to go take, they're about to go move into a new land, the nation of Israel is. And there's this city called Jericho that they have to 
go to war against in order to get a foothold in this new land. And this, so, you know, they got to cross the Ohio River and Jericho is Cincinnati. They're trying to take over Ohio and Jericho is Cincinnati. So they send spies to Cincinnati. This is the story of Rahab. And these spies, they're checking Jericho out. They're checking Cincinnati out. And who does God lead them to stay with? A prostitute. God leads these two holy spies that are supposed to be set apart from the nations, not, you know, not doing any sexual sin to a prostitute. And I just want to say, I think the reason he led them to a prostitute is because it gave Rahab a good alibi for when the king came to her and said, where are the spies? Rahab says, I don't know who they are or where they went. Now, that's actually believable coming from a prostitute. Because <laughs> you go to a prostitute, you're probably not going to tell her who you are or why you're there. You know, you don't want her to know stuff about you. So God leads them to this prostitute. And then she harbors them and she has them stay uh, with her and hides them from getting captured so they can go back to Israel and, or they can go back to Joshua and tell them all the details of how to take Jericho. And here's the power of testimony thing. The reason why she harbored them is because she had heard of all of the things that had happened leading up to this moment. She had heard about the Red Sea being parted. She had heard about the exodus from Egypt. And you guys can stand up. And what she realized was this king, these, these spies king is superior. The, the, these spies God, sorry, is superior to the God I serve. She heard, she realized these, these spies, God, Yahweh, is superior to the God I serve. So I'm gonna get on the winning team. So just put your hands out. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are superior to all of our circumstances. I thank you that you trump every hard thing we come up against in life. I thank you that every other God is an idol, that you are the one true living God, that you win the battle. So right now, I just, Lord, I pray that you bring to mind for all of us an important um, time that you have come through for us to our memory right now. Bring testimonies to mind, God. And just be quiet for a second. God's gonna bring stories to mind for you of when he came through for you or people around you. Now, just as a prophetic act, I want you to like put your hands together and act like you're grabbing a sword. We're just doing something to kind of like associate this in a deeper way. What you're holding right now is your testimony. I bless you all to carry that sword through life this week, that testimony of how God has come through for you, to be able to carry it through life this week and overcome every opposition that comes towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.